Okay, welcome everyone to this edition of the Surety Today program. My name is Mike Stover, and I'm a partner in the Surety Law Group here at Wright Constable and Skeen in Baltimore, Maryland. We're coming to you today from our new office, as I mentioned last month. Uh, we're still in Baltimore. We're at 7 St. Paul Street, 18th floor, Baltimore, Maryland, 21202, in case you haven't gotten our new address. Our phone, fax, email, all that stuff remains the same. I'm joined today by uh, George Backrack. George uh, has been practicing in the surety law field for 42 years. Probably doesn't need an introduction, but he's going to get one anyway. George is uh, a Harvard grad and a graduate of Georgetown Law. Uh, He's a Martindale Hubble AV, super lawyer, best lawyer. He's spoken at every major surety conference around the country. He's uh, been chair of the FSLC and he's chaired many of the uh, committees of the FSLC. He won the Lifetime Achievement Award from the FSLC not too long ago. Um, He has written extensively and has authored or edited uh, many books and book chapters and articles, uh, you name it, I think, in the field of suretyship, uh, George has done it. So uh, I know I feel lucky to have him with us today. As you know, Surety Today is designed to keep the busy claims professional up to date and informed on surety issues. Wherever you are, if you have a phone, you can dial in. If you miss a presentation, you can listen to a recording on our website or at um, or as a podcast at podbean.com under Surety Today. The program is offered only to in-house claims professionals, and we are continuing to grow in popularity. We have issued 178 pins, and over 309 people have called into our presentations. Of course, we greatly appreciate everybody's support and ask that uh, you pass along our contact information to any colleagues uh, who you think might be interested in joining in. And if you have, of course, any suggestions for topics or improvements, please let us know that as well. Also, if you have any technical issues, as always, uh, during the call, please contact uh, Ms. Jeannie Hyatt at jhyatt, H-Y-A-T-T, at wcslaw.com, and she'll try to get you squared away. Uh, We've muted the line so that um, uh, we don't get any background noise, and uh, we'll reopen the lines at the end for uh, any questions uh, and answers. Uh, We will, as I mentioned, be recording. We are also recording the presentation, and that will be available usually uh, three to four days, maybe a week after the conference. Uh, You can get those recordings available. Our topic today is letters of credit as the surety's collateral, the expected and the unexpected. I'll lead off the presentation with a discussion of the nature, purpose, structure of letters of credit. George will then follow and cover the unexpected occurs, the principal files a bankruptcy proceeding, what happens to the letters of credit. Uh, Then I'll discuss what happens to the excess proceeds from the letter of credit. And then finally, George will close out with a discussion of when the surety's receipt of a letter of credit is a preference under the bankruptcy law. So we've got a number of issues, and we'll get started right now with the nature, purpose, and structure of letters of credit. A letter of credit is typically defined as an engagement by an issuer, usually a bank, made at the request of a customer for a fee to honor a beneficiary's draft or other demands for payment upon the satisfaction of the conditions set forth in the letter of credit. That's a technical definition that I just read. Some of the basic nomenclature of letters of credit in the context of suretyship are that the customer or the applicant would be the principal under the bond. 
the issuer of the letter of credit would be the bank, and that's true, generally speaking. The beneficiary under the letter of credit in the suretyship context would be, of course, the surety. The primary purpose of a letter of credit is historically to facilitate commercial transactions by assuring the beneficiary of the letter of credit that they would get payment. Letters of credit initially were used, you know, in, as inter part of international transactions when you weren't sure of the credit uh, worthiness of the person you were dealing with, and you would nominate the bank for the letter of credit and deal with the bank's um, credit as opposed to, you know, your the person you're dealing commercially with. And so, but what more recently the use of, of letters of credit has changed into what's known as a standby letter of credit, and the purpose of that letter of credit is really to act as a form of a guarantee. It, it serves to shift the risk of loss from the beneficiary under the letter of credit, or the surety in our case, to the issuer or the bank in the event that the principal uh, can't pay. So a letter of credit is the product of three separate transactions. And it's helpful to look at it that way, and, the, and some of the courts will describe it as the three legs of a tripod. Uh, but the first transaction is that the principal requests bonds from the surety, and the surety demands as part of its underwriting that the letter of credit be provided along with the indemnity agreement, et cetera. The second transaction is the principal then requesting the issuance of a letter of credit from the bank. And the bank will issue a letter of credit after it obtains a fee for doing so, and usually some collateral or security from the principal. Then the third transaction is the bank issuing the letter of credit to the surety with the surety as the beneficiary of the letter of credit. The linchpin or the unique feature of a letter of credit that makes it a preferred form of collateral is something referred to as the independence principle. The independence principle holds that each of those three underlying transactions that I just mentioned are actually independent and separate from each other. The issuance of the letter of credit is completely separate and independent from the underlying transaction between the principal and the surety. The bank, the issuer of the letter of credit, is pledging its own credit and its own assets in the letter of credit to the beneficiary, regardless of what transpires in the underlying transaction between the principal and the surety. The bank is, is paying out its own money, regardless of whether the principal can reimburse it or if any of the security or collateral that the bank got from the principal in exchange for issuing the letter of credit, all that may be worthless, it may turn out to be nothing, that's too bad, the bank still has to pay on the letter of credit. The obligation of that transaction, the letter of credit transaction, is independent and separate from the underlying uh, transactions of the three. Because of the independence principle and its universally accepted and enforced application to letters of credit, it is almost uniformly held that a letter of credit is not property of the bankruptcy estate should the principal go into bankruptcy. And this makes letter of credit, of course, a, a unique and desirable form of collateral because any other type or form of collateral would likely become property of the estate in the event of a bankruptcy. Some other factors that um, make letters of credit a desirable form of, of collateral include that a letter of credit is essentially a liquid form of collateral. In other words, you go to the bank, you go to the bank that issued the letter of credit and you make your demand and you get your money. And so that's, that's about as liquid as you can be short of cash. Letters of credit are, are of fixed value. So there's no variation with the market, right? 2006, real estate was worth a lot of money. 2009, some of it wasn't worth very much anymore. 
If you were holding that as collateral, you had a market fluctuation. Same thing with stocks, bonds, that kind of stuff. Letters of credits for fixed amount, that's what you get. Um, they're easy to perfect the security interest in. You simply have to be the holder of the letter of credit and be the beneficiary under the letter of credit. If you are, then you control the letter of credit and you, um, and you have perfected your security interest. So there's also no real transaction fees or costs with letters of credit. There's an initial fee that's paid by the principal, but if you want to draw on a letter of credit, there's no fee. Uh, there's no fee to, to, to get it uh, security. There's no fee for, uh, for instance, like real estate, of course. If you wanted to sell it, there'd have to be fees and, and costs incurred with that. Letter of credit, there's none of that. So it, it has a lot of advantages as a form of collateral. Letters of credit are also unique under the law. They are considered to be a commercial specialty that is governed by its own unique rules and terms. Letters of credit have similarities with guarantees. They have similarities with negotiable instruments and contracts, but they're not fully any of those things. They're a separate entity. Uh, letters of credit have their own rules under the Uniform Commercial Code, the UCC Article 5, governs uh, letters of credit, assuming that that's been adopted in your jurisdiction. There are also generally accepted customs and practices that have been set forth in a document called the UCP 600. That's a document created by the International Chamber of Commerce, which, while not uh, having the effect of law, uh, the UCP 600 is often incorporated into letters of credit and therefore would have the force of contract and, and the UCP 600 can also be referred to uh, as evidence for the custom and usage of uh, letters of credit. And finally, letters of credit have, over the, the years, have generated their own sort of common law known as the law merchant, which has established a lot of the underlying rules and principles relating to letters of credit as well. Now, when one is dealing with a letter of credit, you need to be careful in reviewing the terms. And in particular, are two main issues. Uh, the first is the draw requirements on the letter of credit, and the second is the termination or expiration provisions uh, of the letter of credit. On the draw requirements, in order to draw on a letter of credit, the beneficiary must strictly conform to the requirements of the letter of credit. So if you have to make your draw at a particular location during a particular time, if you have to have a particular uh, documents or, or make a specific representation, you have to be sure that you strictly comply with whatever the requirements are for uh, making a draw on the letter of credit. And you want to be careful that, um, you know, that you don't have requirements in your letter of credit that can't be met and, and be careful about uh, how that is all worded. So the issuer's role under letter of credit is simply ministerial. It's to pay a, pay a draw on demand and to make sure that demand conforms. And if it does, then it has the obligation to pay. And of course, the termination, you just got to be really careful about when that termination provision is and make sure that you either uh, get, the, get the letter of credit renewed if it's not an automatic renewal or you get replacement collateral. Okay, George? Before I discuss the unexpected issues with respect to the surety's taking of a letter of credit, I want to reemphasize a couple of points that Mike made. Uh, the independence principle is a critical concept. Under the letter of credit, the issuing bank is complying with its contractual obligations to the beneficiary of the letter of credit, which is the surety. Once the surety complies with the conditions in the letter of credit, the bank pays its money, the letter of credit proceeds to the surety. And I want to emphasize the bank pays its money. 
the only contract between the issuing bank and the surety beneficiary is the letter of credit, and that's the only contract that is truly relevant. The other series of contracts that Mike discussed, the principal surety relationship, which could be an indemnity agreement or a collateral agreement or the bonds, and the agreements between the principal and the issuing bank, they are irrelevant in determining the surety's rights to go ahead and draw on the letter of credit. So now that's the expected. Now the unexpected occurs and the surety's principal files a bankruptcy case and becomes a debtor. What happens to the surety's letter of credit? What happens to the surety's rights to draw on the letter of credit? And what happens to the surety's rights to use the letter of credit proceeds once it gets them? There are two main concepts that you have to keep in mind. Under the Bankruptcy Code, Section 541, it defines property of the debtor's estate. And property includes all of the principal or debtor's legal or equitable interests in property as of the commencement of the bankruptcy case, wherever that property is located and by whomever that property is held. And that property includes property that may even have contingent rights to it. Uh, the courts, the bankruptcy courts will broadly interpret what is property of the estate. They want to bring everything they can into the estate. The second main concept under the Bankruptcy Code is Section 362, the automatic stay. An automatic stay arises as of the commencement of the bankruptcy case and prevents actions by all of the creditors to enforce their rights against property of the estate. This automatic stay includes any action that a surety may take against property of the debtor's estate, which the surety may have an interest in, either a security interest or whatever, such as cash, deposit accounts, CDs, real and personal property. So how do the concepts of property of the estate and the automatic stay affect the surety's collateral, that is a letter of credit? You have to look at three questions. Number one, is the letter of credit itself property of the debtor's estate? The answer is no. The letter of credit is a contract between the issuing bank and the surety beneficiary in which the principal or debtor has no property rights or interest. Second question is, are the proceeds of the letter of credit property of the debtor's estate? The cases say no, and the reason it's no, it's because it's the bank's money not the principal debtor's property. I give you a caveat, though, however. If the principal debtor does provide its own collateral to secure the bank that has issued the letter of credit, the debtor may subsequently have rights to the letter of credit proceeds held by the surety, and we will get to that issue later. The third question is, assuming that the surety can comply with any conditions in the letter of credit in order to draw on the letter of credit proceeds, does the automatic stay prevent the surety from drawing on the letter of credit? The answer is no. The letter of credit proceeds are not property of the debtor's estate, and therefore the automatic stay does not apply. Now, practically, how should the surety proceed with respect to the letter of credit and drawing on the letter of credit during the uh, debtor's bankruptcy case? First, unless there is some deadline or emergency, we have found that it is important for the surety, before it draws on the letter of credit, to at least discuss that, that draw with the debtor and its counsel prior to taking such action. 
they're going to appreciate it and it's going to smooth things over. Second, when should the surety draw on the letter of credit proceeds? Obviously, if the bank provides notice to the surety that it's not going to renew the letter of credit after the petition date at some point, then the surety should draw in full on the letter of credit before the expiration date of the letter of credit. Um, as a result, when you have such a case and you know you have a letter of credit as collateral, you should become very much aware of the expiration date and the time for the bank to provide notice. And you may have to start fishing around to find out whether notice has been, been given because who, knowing who notice goes to can be a problem. And sometimes that notice will go to underwriters or somebody else and you don't learn of it uh, timely. Uh, you really have to keep track of that because I can guarantee you that missing the date to draw on a letter of credit could cost all of us our jobs. Uh, there's too much at stake to draw. You have to draw on it. Furthermore, if there are claims being made post-petition against the bonds and assuming that the surety can make multiple draws under the uh, same letter of credit, the surety should draw on the letter of credit in an amount to cover the expected bond loss plus expenses and attorney's fees. Uh, if during that period of time you do get notice for the bank of non-renewal, then of course uh, you should draw on the whole bond, uh, letter of credit. Finally, how can the surety use what it has drawn? If you draw a million dollars on the letter of credit, what can you use it for? You have rights under the indemnity agreement signed by the principal. You have rights under a collateral agreement if one was signed, which may be much more specific about the use of the collateral. Uh, you should know that those two agreements uh, bind the debtor during its bankruptcy case, and you may act accordingly under those documents because the proceeds that you have obtained are not property of the debtor's estate. Mike? Okay, in this uh, next section, I'm going to talk about the unexpected, what happens to the excess letter of credit proceeds. So basically, the scenario is standard. You know, you've gotten the uh, letter of credit issued after a while. Uh, maybe some reasons pop up for, for drawing down on it, such as the principal goes into bankruptcy or claims are made or the bank advises it's no longer going to renew the letter of credit. So you draw down on it. Uh, after a while, you've got some claims and, and some LAE costs and expenses, and you reimburse yourselves for that. Now you're sitting there, and you're holding uh, a pot of money, and you don't have any claims coming in at the moment, and you're just sitting there. Um, even and, and, and so the question is, what happens to that pot of money? Um, you know, who, who gets those funds? Are they excess proceeds? Uh, even if a bond is canceled, of course, as we all know, the surety still has the potential or contingent exposure under the bonds uh, for that period of time when the bonds were effective. So the question is important because many bankruptcy courts have held that although letters of credit are not property of the bankruptcy estate, excess proceeds from a letter of credit are property of the estate. So uh, the way the courts look at it, they've reasoned that once uh, the letter of credit has been drawn down, the independence principle is no longer at issue, and the funds are held by the beneficiary become subject to the underlying relationships between the beneficiary, in this case the surety, and the principal. So the courts uh, treat the, the proceeds as property of the bankruptcy estate. So the courts have defined excess proceeds generally as 
proceeds of a letter of credit in excess of what is owed or what the beneficiary is legally entitled to receive or what the beneficiary needs to satisfy the underlying obligations. So if you're uh, holding funds that the court believes is in excess of what you're entitled to or what you need to secure yourself, then the court could look at those proceeds as being um, excess proceeds. In the suretyship context, because the surety continues to have that contingent or potential liability under its bonds, the funds up to the penal sum of the bonds should not be viewed as excess proceeds in, in our view. And George and I have uh, have fought this issue a number of times. And uh, uh, a while back, we beat off Skadden and Arps in a national bankruptcy. They were trying to get at the uh, at the proceeds, and we're still holding that today. That's been what seven years? We said seven years ago. Um, so, but, you know, of course, the whole purpose of the letter of credit in the first place is to secure the surety against the potential losses that the principal cannot indemnify or reimburse. So this purpose remains in place until the surety's liability under the bond is extinguished. And so the question then is generated as, um, you know, when is the surety's liability uh, extinguished? And so we'll, we'll, we'll look at that. Um, I mean, yeah, the problem comes up with, with, as I mentioned, we've had this come up a number of times. The problem comes up because the bankruptcy trustees, they see this pot of money over there that the surety's holding, and they just they just can't wait to get their hands on it. They, they try to uh, come up with all kinds of ways to get at it, and so we end up uh, fighting these battles. Um, but let's see, that this issue of, of, of the excess collaterals really brings up the point, though, that uh, you need to have a detailed collateral agreement, a document that clearly defines um, what the collateral is being held for and when that collateral is going to be released and under what terms and to who. You really need to have those issues addressed in a, in a good, thorough, and detailed uh, collateral agreement before you get the, uh, the collateral in the first place. In the absence of an agreement, the surety must look to other factors to determine when its contingent liability will cease. It could be that upon the discharge of the bond by the obligee that the surety's uh, liability will cease. And that's, that's true in the case of, say, like a utility bond where there's only one potential claimant, and that's the obligee. And if the obligee discharges the bond, then there's no further liability typically under a bond like that. Um, it could be the same thing where the obligee releases the surety. But um, it could be also that the liabilities extinguish upon the payment of the penal sum of the bond. Um, but it might not be until the expiration of the applicable statute of limitations on a bond that the surety's liability is extinguished. And that's particularly true in cases where there's third-party uh, claimants potentially under the bond. So, for instance, like a contractor's licensing bond or a payment bond or even um, liability for latent defects under performance bond. You've got potential exposure out there, and and so the statute limitations may be the only way to really uh, be be certain that your liability has been uh, extinguished. And the problem, of course, with statute limitations is they vary by jurisdiction, and um, you know you've got to look at when does the when does the claim accrue? Is it discovery or breach? Uh, what is a bond? Is it a specialty? Is it an, is it an instrument under seal? And what statutes of limitations are going to apply? They're different in every jurisdiction, and it becomes really murky as to when uh, limitations has run. If the proceeds are excess, and you know, you've, let's say you've, you've looked at the issue and you're convinced that your 
contingent liability is extinguished and you've got this situation now where there's excess money, who gets the money? You know, does the bank get the money, the bank that issued the letter of credit? Are they entitled to the return of the funds? Does the principal get the money? Uh, do they Are they out uh, their collateral and want to be reimbursed? Do they have a right to the claim? Is the trustee in bankruptcy uh, have a right to get the funds back? And this is a situation where the surety uh, may find itself in the middle of two parties disputing who gets the money. And so, you know, the advice there is that uh, the surety not take a risk and pay the wrong party and that instead an action be brought either in the nature of an interpleader or in some kind of a declaratory judgment in order to determine where the money should be paid to protect the surety. George? We'd like to talk a couple of minutes about preferences because it's normally assumed that, uh, that you get the proceeds of a letter of credit, you, you won't have a preference. And unfortunately, that's not the case. Uh, the expected is, is that letter of credit proceeds are not proper the debtor's estate. And one of the prime uh, elements of a preference is that the, the receiving party must receive uh, property of the debtor's estate. The, uh, the criteria for a preference is uh, a transfer for the benefit of a creditor on account of an antecedent debt made within 90 days uh, and of the bankruptcy and if the principal is insolvent. But the triggering aspect is is that there has to be a transfer of property of the estate. Um, while there are other conditions for the avoidance of a preference and certain defenses to a preference, the threshold issue is how can the surety receiving order of credit proceeds that are assets of the bank issuing the order of credit be found to be liable for that preference if the letter of credit proceeds are not proper to the estate. Unfortunately, however, while a letter of credit or the proceeds of a letter of credit are not property of the debtor's bankruptcy estate, the principal's property, whether it's cash or otherwise, pledged as collateral to the bank issuing the letter of credit to the surety is property of the estate. Uh, and this fact may result in a preference action brought against the surety because the principals obtaining the letter of credit with its collateral and giving that letter of credit, excuse me, letter of credit to the surety is a payment of an antecedent debt. Uh, this situation can be most clearly understood with an example. Uh, the principal executes the indemnity agreement in favor of the surety. The principal and the surety execute bonds. The principal then comes, has a financial situation which is deteriorating and claims are made against the bond. The surety under the indemnity agreement demands collateral in the form of a letter of credit for a million dollars. The principal then applies to the bank for that million dollar letter of credit, and the bank requires a million dollars in cash to secure it. The principal supplies the cash, and the bank issues the letter of credit to the surety. So here are the three contracts we've been talking about. The principal and surety contract is the indemnity agreement and collateral agreement. The principal and the bank agree uh, to obtain the letter of credit for the principal, but the principal hands over a million dollars in cash. The bank issues the million dollar letter of credit to the surety. Let's assume then that within 90 days the principal becomes insolvent and files a bankruptcy, and then the surety draws a million dollars on the letter of credit. Remember, those proceeds are the bank's assets, not assets of the principal or, or the debtor. 
But as you know, the, the bank has the right and the ability to reimburse itself because it's got a million dollars in cash. When you look at that factual situation, the courts have found that such a factual situation involving letters of credit, their proceeds, and the principal's collateral provided to the bank, all for an antecedent debt, which is what the surety is getting the letter of credit for, uh, and which meet the other criteria of being a preference, is an indirect transfer to the surety. Yes, there was an initial uh, transfer from the principal to the bank to secure the letter of credit, but there's an immediate transferee, a second transfer that goes from the bank to the surety, and the bank gets out of the way. Uh, the courts have merely collapsed those three transactions into one transaction and ignored the independence principle. Uh, unfortunately, in my opinion, these cases make sense. The surety was an unsecured creditor and made a demand under the indemnity agreement to get security and collateral or to be placed in funds for past obligations, its obligations under prior bonds. That is an antecedent debt. The bank is nothing more than a middleman. It gets its collateral, it issues the letter of credit, it realizes on the collateral and gets paid back. So the surety, which was faced with an unsecured loss of a million dollars, now has a million dollars of security, and the principal debtor is out a million dollars in cash. If all the other elements of a preference action are met, despite the fact that the surety thinks it's holding letter of credit proceeds of security which are not property of the estate, the bank may unwind the transaction and find that the surety, in fact, has received a preference if this all occurs within the requirements of the uh, Section 547. So the question is, should the surety demand and, and accept a letter of credit as collateral for an antecedent debt? Absolutely yes. You always take the collateral and keep your fingers crossed because more than 90 days have passed. What if the surety obtains a letter of credit for the issuance of new bonds? That's a different situation because one of the defenses to a preference is a contemporaneous exchange for new value. If, they, if the surety gets a letter of credit for new bonds and obligations, that means that the surety is providing new value and it is a defense to a preference. However, if the surety obtains a letter of credit not only for the issuance of new bonds, but also to cover potential losses under antecedent debts, namely prior executed bonds, that can be more problematic, and there's, there are a couple of cases that talk about that, which are really we, we can give to you later. The risk when you take collateral like a letter of credit for both a, a new value and a, an antecedent debt is how is the court going to decide what it's for? Uh, that's a tough problem. Mike? Okay, so we're done. Um, just to wrap up, I mean, this is a very dense topic, George and I talked about it when we were preparing, that there really is a lot of issues here. And fortunately, George and I wrote a chapter along with uh, Karen Mohan Maxfield in 2012 uh, in, the, in, the book, in, in the book, The Law of Commercial Surety and Miscellaneous Bonds, second edition. We wrote the uh, chapter 20, uh, The Commercial Surety's Collateral in a Principal's Bankruptcy Case. Uh, that's an ABA FSLC publication. And we uh, can make that available to anybody who wants to, um, you know, send us an email and let us know. If you want a copy, we'll send it to you. Uh, consider that an early holiday present. 
but it gets into all kinds of collateral and all kinds of issues, but then it also does deal with letters of credit as well. So before we open up the line for the Q&A, I want to let everybody know that the next edition of Surety Today is January 9th, 2017, 1230 Eastern Time, of course, and our topic will be interpleaders, and I'll be joined by Mark Campson. Um, surety industry events coming up. we got January 18th through the 20th, the FSLC Midwinter Meeting in New Orleans, and uh, February 15th, 2017, the Philadelphia Surety Claims Association holds its lunch meeting as well as the Atlanta Surety Claims holds its lunch meeting. So let me uh, open up the lines here.